Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today on New Books Network, we welcome Dr. Elena P. Rock, Assistant Professor of History at Georgia Southern University. Her book in this podcast episode is titled The Spirit of Colonial Williamsburg, Ghosts and Interpreting the Recreated Past from the University of Massachusetts Press. It came to us this past September and reviewers are gushing about Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia as a haunting historical place that P-Rock interprets with new cultural meanings. Elena, give us more insight into why you decided to write this book and also how does this book fit in with the other research that you're doing now or have been studying? Uh, so my uh, my inspiration, I guess, for this book really comes from the fact that as a historian of public history, I look at the way that people uh, interpret and present the past. And that sort of brought me to various different historical sites, exploring how people interpret and represent the past there. Uh, and Colonial Williamsburg is really one of the largest and most popular, most well-known historical sites, uh, at least in the 20th century. U.S. Uh, for presenting the past. So I, uh, my exploration of it really comes from this larger discussion that historians are having about the history of public history. The ghost element um, comes from really a hunch, I guess. Um, I really enjoy historical homes. I like going through them. Uh, I like seeing them. And one of the things that occurred to me when I was going through historical homes, touring casually and touring them as a graduate student, was beginning to question why these period rooms were so perfect. What was sort of the impetus behind setting up these rooms in a way that if the person who used to live there came back, they would recognize it perfectly? So that sort of idea uh, kind of roll around in my head for a while. Of, okay, or 
why would someone create a room for someone else who's never coming back? They're dead, right? They're in in the case of uh, Mount Vernon, George Washington's never coming back, and yet they keep his home preserved as if he would. Um, so that made me think, and I was like, all right, how how do humans come back, right? <laughs> and uh, I landed on this idea of like, are they? Is is there something ghosty about this? Is there something to do with an idea of haunting? Do they think that like the spirit of so and so historical person is going to re inhabit these homes? And that was just sort of a hypothesis or uh, like an inkling. And then I began to look at the founding papers, the the documents that the folks who decided to restore these old buildings and make them look like they did in the in the uh, the seventeen hundreds. And what I discovered is that in many cases, these early sites that are restored in like the turn of the twentieth century, early twentieth century, the founders did talk about their projects in terms of ghosts and spirits and hauntings. Uh, and Colonial Williamsburg, as this sort of flagship preservation uh, and historical town institution, had a lot of talk of ghosts in their early years. So that's like once I found that this sort of inkling in the back of my head was true, I just kind of ran with it. And I began to find more and more ways that people were talking about historical sites and the importance of historical place using this rhetoric of ghosts and hauntings and spirits. As a historian, are you looking at different topics such as esotericism, popular belief, folklore also to help you with your topic of colonial Williamsburg? How are you framing your research? So um, I, when writing my dissertation, which was much broader, it was about uh, Virginia ghost stories and their relation to history and sort of historical place. I did look a lot into um, uh, folklore because a, a lot of the records that, that we have of ghost stories come from folklore projects or folklore collections like the, 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 the WPA and the Federal Writers Project. They collected a lot of ghost stories. So because that was my original primary source set, I was also looking into how folklorists have talked about folklore um, and sort of how um, people make sense of the world using folklore stories. I did I didn't look um I didn't look as much into esotericism, but I did do uh, a little bit of exploration about new age spiritualism, which I think might be related. Uh, but sort of this development in the 1970s, lasting um, into the 90s of folks who would, uh, this is sort of the, where um, like mediums in the late 20th century came out of. So those those television shows, uh, like crossing over, there was a few mediums that were on Oprah uh, at the turn of the last century. Um, or no, this century, sorry. At the turn of this century, there were many, uh, folks who would come on these daytime shows and talk to the um, dead loved ones of, of audience members. And that was really an outgrowth of this new age spiritualist movement uh, that began in the 1970s. So I did, I did look a little bit there, uh, but my focus for specifically the book was more about um, ghost stories and how people use the rhetoric of ghosts and less so um, the like true belief in ghosts. So there, I, I touch on very, very minimally the practice of ghost hunting, 
um, which is sometimes coincides with ghost tours um, and really does come come out of that new age spiritualist movement. But I kind of see that as a related but sort of different thing. Uh, because oftentimes when people are using ghosts to understand a historical place, the um, the pressure to truly believe in ghosts or to have scientific evidence of ghosts is really not there. So I, I kind of see that as a, a secondary or a second category of sort of this relationship to ghosts. Does your book include historical reenactments? I know that this is a living history very much so. One of my main arguments is that reenactments or what they're called at at historical sites, more formally first person interpretation is a performance of this ghostly idea. Uh, Because especially in, in colonial Williamsburg, the people who are walking around town or they're, they're really oftentimes um, inside buildings who are portraying um, Thomas Jefferson or one of um, the enslaved folks of Williamsburg or uh, Patrick Henry, they are fully committed, right? They're wearing the outfit. They're saying, I am this person and I will respond to you as a 18th century person. When understanding these historical sites as having been inspired by this understanding of haunting and ghosts, it becomes really easy to see these first person interpreters as a performance upon that idea that they are sort of bringing this sense of a recreated past people and all um, and making it real. So the, the, the way that I talk about first person interpreters in the book is to talk about them as this expression of humanity, right? Because really, when we when we talk about ghosts and when people use ghosts to understand historical place, what they're doing is they are making the past and the place into something that they can relate to, which is a human being. So it is very sort of very human, very um, emotional relationship. And I think that that's what the first person interpreters offer is that they transform this historically restored physical place, restored buildings, restored um, streets and bushes and to, to, to a certain extent, they the presence of first person interpreters transforms that restored history into a human experience, into a restored humans and connecting to the past through a shared sense of humanity or a shared recognition of of humanity becomes much more powerful than simply, um, you know, that, that shared experience of like, I have a chair in my house and look at this, you have a chair in your old house too. So that's, that, that's the way that I look at first person interpreters or even more broadly historical reenactments within this book. Why then are ghost tours themselves so popular in Williamsburg and what changed the philosophy in recent times to make them more common? I think the reason why ghost tours are popular is because they're offering something that both feels more human and more connected and also feels like you're learning a secret, right? People like to learn secrets. Um, they, 
many of the ghost tours sort of advertise themselves as hidden histories or the things you're you're not going to hear on the daytime tours and that's very attractive right because people want to know what they're not supposed to know or they they want to know the things that they haven't been able to know but i think when it when you're actually on these tours um the reason why people keep coming back is because it feels a lot um more real and more intimate um because the way that a ghost tour is given situates the guests within something that's happening now that is related to the past so when when you go on a daytime tour they do their very best to sort of put you in the the sort of shoes of an 18th century person and to give you that vibe right but on a ghost tour, they're saying the past is here already. You uh, you might notice it. You you might not notice it, but it's here. And if you just pay attention, if you just know the the clues, if you just can interpret what's going on, then you can experience it too. And I think that ghosts do that, or the sort of the idea of ghosts and ghost tours do that in a way that uh, is really attractive to people that it it seems more human to say the ghost of this person is here right now rather than saying this person lived in this house hundreds of years ago. So I, I think a, a large amount of the popularity of these tours has to do with that, this, this ability for people to connect on a much more human level to people of the past. And then there's, of course, a bunch of other... Uh, uh, people who are attracted just because they, they they like the opportunity to be scared a little bit. Uh, but most of the ghost tours in Williamsburg don't tend to be very scary. Um, some, some uh, if they're a, a better storyteller, might give you a bit of um, tension, right? There, there might be a bit more mystery in it. Uh, but, but by and large, they're, they're not jump scary. They're not haunted house stories by any means in in the traditional sense (laughs) what living history museum or museums are you looking at in this book so this book is exclusively about colonial williamsburg um but because colonial williamsburg is not the first museum to do first person interpretation i do mention um uh the plymouth plantation and saint mary's city both of these institutions began first-person interpretation and sort of the style of doing it before Colonial Williamsburg. So um, Plymouth Plantation most famously started their, their first-person interpretation rather gritty, or their I think it was their second iteration of it was very gritty. So the uh, these people who were performing as 16th century people didn't wear shoes and they were kind of dirty and messy and their hair was very scraggly. Um, so I talked a little bit about that because Colonial Williamsburg, of course, is very different from that. Colonial Williamsburg is a very clean, very tidy place. So uh, what lessons they took from Plymouth Plantation were more about sort of the power of having a first person interpreter uh, rather than the really, really gritty part of it. Because again, Colonial Williamsburg is very tidy. And then uh, I do talk a little bit about St. Mary's City which is an archaeologically informed uh, historical site in Maryland. And one of the things that they pioneered was this sort of place-based narrative where you would go to one site, uh, be it a building or a farm area, and you would 
in, interact with a interpreter who would have sort of a story to tell that sort of fit in with, with the larger story of the whole site. And when Colonial Williamsburg began to outline their first person interpretation plan, it was really inspired by what St. Mary City was was doing with this sort of bringing the whole narrative together. And and that was happening in the uh, um, in, uh, late 20th century. So after they so after they had created the first person interpretation program um, and they were trying to refine it, that's when they're really picking up on um, a lot of what the um, institutions that had sort of experimented with this a little bit earlier. But it is the, the book is largely uh, a book about Colonial Williamsburg rather than sort of an overview of lots of um, first person interpretation sites. Your chronology does it begin in a certain time period? Um, also, you know, where does it go and when does it end? Good. So, yeah, I I begin a little bit before Colonial Williamsburg's restoration project began. So I begin in the uh, late 1800s. Um, and I begin talking about sort of the culture of understanding historical properties as haunted. Uh, in the late 1800s. So um, people at this time period, sort of wealthier, um, independent writers were going around to older houses, both in the South and uh, Northmore on the East Coast. Uh, And they're interviewing the people who live there and asking them about their homes and their home's historical significance. And like what what makes their house special? And many of the people, when when interviewed, would explain their home's historical significance in terms of ghost stories. They would say, "Oh well, this this house was built in 1705, and uh, upstairs there's a revolutionary or a soldier who who haunts about right." So they would connect their home to this larger revolutionary era history, uh, and you do see sort of a very large tradition of this happening in Virginia. Um, and Virginia is also the place where the United States starts developing these house museums. So I, through this sort of, uh, late 18th century, I also begin uh, looking at Mount Vernon because Mount Vernon is the first historically, um, curated and restored house museum within the United States. And a huge part of their sort of inspiration is this idea of, creating a um, authentic and accurate historical home and inside to the point that George Washington and, and his friends now as ghosts or spirits come back and enjoy the home as they once would. So with with seeing that in these, these early, early, early house museums, um, I sort of take that and begin looking at how the idea to restore the city of Williamsburg was talked about. And I found a lot of talk of ghosts in that as well. So that brings us to the 1920s. Um, and the uh, local cleric, um, W.A.R. Godwin, he's talking about this sort of need to restore the city to the way that it looked like uh, at sort of the birth of the American Revolution. And his argument is that already at Outside of being restored, if, if you sit at night and you listen, you can see and perhaps hear 
the ghosts of the revolution, right? You can see soldiers, you can see the British, you can see Native Americans, you can see these great thinkers from, from the revolutionary era existing within this city, even before the restoration. And so he makes this argument that through restoration, all of this can be enlivened for anybody, right? For for the average American who can come now to Williamsburg and have this deeply um, significant and deeply personal experience with the past. So that takes us through the 20s. He's making those arguments. Uh, in the 20s and throughout the 30s, we're going to see the development of the restoration. So Colonial Williamsburg is being restored to, well, really, the city of Williamsburg is being restored to look like its colonial self. Uh, and we look at the interpretation, how the sort of professional interpretation of Colonial Williamsburg is having sort of a difficult time trying to explain the significance of the restoration without talking about ghosts, because they really push back on that. They're thinking, you know, we're not going to talk about ghosts. This isn't serious. Uh, it's just not a part of our professionalism. And because of that, they're having trouble really finding a solid ground on how to explain this restored city and its significance. So I sort of follow that um, throughout the uh, mid-20th century, we get to the 1970s with the development of the first-person interpretation program that really brings this idea of ghosts back to life, or this sort of past people on the landscape really back to life. Uh, we go through the 1980s, a lot of the um, sort of fluctuating financial issues go up through the 2000s. Uh, and into the 2010s, even talking about at, at that moment, the development of formal ghost tours in Williamsburg uh, and how the private tours really influenced the uh, Colonial Williamsburg Foundation to begin looking at ghost stories in a more serious way. Um, and I even I bring the book up to, I think, like 2019, um, really seeing how the ghost tours and at the same time, sort of a um, very close development uh, is Colonial Williamsburg's Halloween extravaganza. So now they, they do this very large and involved Halloween event that, that lasts a few days. And it really leans into the, the Halloween spirit. And I kind of argue how um, the, the existence of that, of these big, big, big ticket events made the development of ghost tours seem almost um, uh, normal, right? So for many years, uh, people were very unsure about the serious nature of ghost tours. But once this extravaganza blew up, uh, ghost tours seemed like something that would be, you know, you don't even have to debate it. It's just add it in. It's fine. And your thesis and argument, if you haven't already, is it different from maybe what other historians are saying? And also, how is it intertwined with the theories about landscape and place? So my the uh, the argument for my book is that ghost stories and the idea of hauntings have significantly influenced both the development of Colonia Williamsburg and its interpretation. Uh, and what makes my research different from what other people have done, is that I'm looking at how ghost stories and the idea of hauntings have shaped historical sites. Um, there hasn't been engagement with that specifically, though many scholars in tourism studies have looked at how historical sites are now embracing ghost tourism, and they'll talk about the, the, the complexity of that. Um, historian Taya Miles wrote a book in, uh, I believe, 2015, 
about sort of the problems of ghost tours in historical cities and and, and how they are really doing harm to um, African-American people of the past and African-American history, and they're really not helping. So what... um, what mine does that's different is that I'm looking specifically at historical sites and doing um, really very little examination of ghost stories themselves. So I'm not looking at really, you know, I'm not peeling back the layers of the ghost stories. I'm rather looking at what the idea of haunting and the idea of ghost stories has done to the way that we understand historical place and historical space. So in that way, it does talk about place and landscape, because these ghost uh, stories, this idea of haunting is what's, is what people are using to define areas. So they are saying, you know, this, this building is important because it's haunted by this or that person. This, this seemingly bare landscape is important because there's a ghost of a guy who used to work at a mill here. So my, my contribution is more about sort of the concept of ghosts rather than sort of what the stories are actually doing. Um, And I don't fight back against that in any way. A significant number of the stories uh, that we have access to, those that that were collected um, in the 30s and 40s by the WPA and the the Federal Writers Project by uh, early folklorists there, to our 21st century ears and eyes, extraordinarily just out of date um, and very sort of unhelpful. They're, uh, to the point, some are cruel, um, but my work sort of looks at the idea of haunting rather than exploring the sort of meaning behind the stories themselves, which I believe have been covered very well by more contemporary folklorists and um, other historians of sort of ghost stories. Can you describe some of the local stories then of these ghosts? Yeah. Maybe popular one. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's two that always stick out. Um, so the first one is the story of Lady Skipwith. Um, and and this one is it's been debunked all over the place. If you if you ask any interpreter who's working at Colonial Williamsburg, they'll roll their eyes and they'll be like, ah no, I got a whole binder of reasons why this is wrong. But the story of, of Lady Skipwith says that uh, she and her husband had come to, this is the um, 1700s before the revolution. She and her husband had come to Williamsburg for a party. And that was pretty common. Uh, colon- or the city of Williamsburg was the colonial capital. So people in the 1700s, when they need to go do business, when they're doing their social stuff, when they're shopping, they're coming to Williamsburg. So she and her husband come, come to this party at the governor's palace. So there's this great big ball. Uh, and the ghost stories differ a little bit because that's kind of how ghost stories work. Everyone adds their flavor to it. Um, so she and her husband are at this ball and she noticed that her husband's talking with another woman. And some stories say it's her sister. Some stories say it's just another woman. But either way, Lady Skipwith is just infuriated. So she runs out of this party. Uh, she she runs like through uh, the city. She's running down the streets and she gets to the White House. Uh, where she was staying and she climbs up the stairs and she throws herself off of the interior balcony to her death. Right. And the story goes that 
now her ghost haunts that house that people see specifically her little red shoes and her cream colored dress. And she was a woman who was short of stature. Uh, and folks will say that they can see a small woman with red shoes and a cream dress sort of tapping around the house uh, in her little shoes. Now, historically, that woman did not die uh, in Williamsburg. She actually died of childbirth some years after her and her husband visited Williamsburg. Um, but the story itself really sticks because you you have this, uh, in many of the tellings, they'll go into details about the ball. So there's lots of like 17th century glamour. And they'll talk about her dress. So you have that glamour there too. Uh, and it's just drama, right? Uh, so the the story really sticks because people like sort of the, the drama of it all and that they can sort of imagine this elite colonial ball with all of its finery and all that. Um, and, and that one's very, very popular. Uh, and it's been told for well over a hundred years. Uh, but it is inaccurate because the, the woman that it revolves around, she did not die there. Uh, and there's there's no evidence that she actually threw a fit and ran out of the ball. Um, the other one that's very popular is about Lucy Ludwell. Um, and this one is a little older, or I guess newer. Uh, Lucy Ludwell's story begins at the uh, turn of the 19th century. So it's after the revolution. And Lucy Ludwell, had she's wealthy. She had spent a lot of her life abroad. And in her older age, she moves back to Williamsburg, where she had, I believe, had had been a child. And so she's living in her ancestral home, and she's just kind of odd. Um, she has a like special carriage maid that is stationary that she'll like invite people to her house, and they'll just sit in the carriage, and she'll have her uh, enslaved folks just shake the carriage to make it feel like you're riding in it but you're not, you're stationary. Um, she also got criticized by her neighbors for bathing too much. They thought that was weird. Um, she was also rumored to have frequently stolen her friend's accessories. So like stealing her friend's hats and stuff and then walking out with them like, oh, look at my new hat. So she's a she's an odd character in the, in the stories, of course. And she ended up, because of her sort of odd mannerisms, uh, her neighbors had her condemned to the uh, the asylum in town. Um, and so she actually ends up dying in, in the asylum, having been deemed mentally insane. So the ghost stories say that in the, um, the Ludwell Paradise House, you can hear her turning on and off the faucets. And um, if your things go missing, it's, it's probably her or she's, you, you could hear sort of sad footsteps around because the story, of course, um, says that she's mad, right? Now, historically, Lu Lucy Ludwell did, in fact, die in the asylum within the city. Um, but her her oddity that is expressed in the story is a lot less when you look at the factual records. She comes off more like a independent woman that was not accepted in, in the time period. She was... Um, doing a lot of things that people did not find acceptable. She was much more sort of forceful than I think they, uh, the local people were accustomed to. And in their eyes, that was insanity, right? That this, this woman was stepping out in this big way. She just looked super, super wacky to them. Um, so those, those are the, the two stories that, that always stick out in my mind because both of them are really 
um, they're saying a lot. They're they're saying a lot about like how women were understood during their their, their time periods. They're saying a lot about uh, like what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, uh, and and they're both about women. So I like I like that too. But they 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 come off as these very sympathetic characters when you begin to sort of look at who they were actually outside of their very very popular ghost stories. You get these two really deep. Uh, and complex women that have been kind of rendered very uh, nutty by these stories. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And so how then is the Revolutionary War and some of those soldiers, nurses, regular citizens, enslaved people, part of your research? Yeah, so that those those themes are essentially the, the themes that Colonia Williamsburg is curated around. The, the city today, that is how they talk about the city, excuse me, the museum today, that's how they talk about the city and its history is it is a story of the revolution. It is a story about all the people who were involved with the revolution, who lived through the, the, the revolution. So as we uh, sort of look at how this historical site is interpreted, it is sort of these people that are highlighted. Uh, and we see that in both the first person interpretations who who is sort of chosen to be a character and whose character is developed and in um in the ghost stories that are continued to be told so um ghost stories like history doesn't stay the same so we do see the development of of newer ghost stories where where people will say oh well i was in i was in this this restored building and i felt uh, a cool breeze, and I think that that is um, this enslaved person who who the records say lived here for for a time, and this is why I think that they are haunted. So that's that's how sort of that that sort of group core of people pop up is that's that's simply how Colonial Williamsburg is interpreting themselves today, and the ghost stories that are told on contemporary tours definitely follow that line. What about the descendants of? some of the colonial Williamsburg families. Did you reach out to them? Are they there? Are they alive doing tours? Mm-hmm. I haven't reached out to the families, but I know that in the late 1800s, a lot of the, uh, what I categorize as old home biographers, those people who are going around writing up biographies of the homes that, um, 
these these old homes, they were talking with many descendants of the uh, folks who had had the houses built, and they would often share the the ghost stories in this very familiar way of like, oh, great, great, great aunt so and so is up in the attic, or you know we. We know that we are connected to this house in an emotional way, in a significant way, because great-great-grandpa is still here with us. Uh, but, but beyond that, there was a lot of sort of changing hands of these properties in the past um, 200 years that uh, the, the ancestors of the people who had the houses built uh, oftentimes are not living in those homes anymore and don't really have a uh, strong connection to them con- contemporarily. And your research process, maybe could you tell us then some of the some of your methods? Um, were you doing oral interviews? Were you gathering information from archives? Yeah. So um, largely, my research comes from archival sources. So um, I looked at. Well, a significant amount of my time was spent in Colonial Williamsburg's corporate archives, looking at the papers, looking at the plans, looking at the reports that the managers and interpreters had written that interpreted uh, Williamsburg. So a lot of it was that. A lot of it was um, looking at records of uh, sort of other projects in the area that tried to also interpret Colonial Williamsburg. So there's things like the um, the Jamestown Corporation, which went on to host and put on um, Our Common Glory, which was this symphonic show that lasted from 1947 to 1974. Uh, and it, you know, it was this huge musical outdoor theater show uh, that drew in people from all over the state and actually had very famous people taking part in it. Um, uh, Glenn, I believe Glenn Close, when, when she was a young woman, participated in this sort of statewide performance play. So I, I looked at those records as well to see how other sites were trying to interpret the city. I looked at records concerning uh, the development of Bush Gardens. There's a Bush Gardens in, in Williamsburg that is sort of themed to Europe. I, th- I think it was originally called uh, Bush Gardens, the old country. So it sort of was in conversation with Colonial Williamsburg and its um, historical theme, right? So I looked at that. Um, I did, I, I did, I didn't do oral interviews in the formalized way uh, that sort of a student of oral history would do, but I did I- interview many former employees, um, former interpreters, former archaeologists, former historians at Colonial Williamsburg, uh, who could um, sort of give me a little bit more insight on, on their experience, both of interpreting the historical site and their exchanges with guests who may have gone on ghost tours or asked about ghost tours and things of that like. And early on in my dissertation process, um, before the book, I was able to use um, ghost story author L.B. Taylor Jr.'s books a great deal. Uh, and he wrote just an- anthologies, like 14 or so books about just ghost stories in Virginia. 
And he wasn't a historian, so he's, he's not really using the Chicago style and he's not using like footnote citations, but his books were very narrative. And, and he would talk about the various places that he went to collect these Virginia ghost stories. And that helped me a great deal to be able to identify what archives had ghost stories. Because often archives don't have a finding aid that says, here's all your ghost stuff. So that was very helpful to have um, Taylor's books where he's talking about how he went to this how he went to UVA and then how he went up to Madison and finding all of these stories. And I was able, he actually passed away like a few months before I could reach out to him. So, but I was able to contact um, his wife and she let me explore his office and look through his papers. And, uh, and that was very, very valuable um, to just, you know, be able to find these threads of like, okay, this is what people are looking at. This is uh, this is where the, the the stories are in in the archive. So most of it, yeah, most of the the research was archival. I did go on a bunch of ghost tours too. That that I did a lot of as well. Uh, but that those um, those are more observations rather than sort of thorough methodological study. Physical restoration. We mentioned. You mentioned. Mm-hmm. And 18th century buildings like the Randolph House, um, other buildings in Williamsburg, how are they a part of the revival of haunts? Oh, okay. Hmm. So the the Randolph House in in particular uh, sits sort of in a really easily accessible place in Williamsburg. And for many, many years after it had been restored, it had, uh, it was white. It was like a whitewashed building. Um, really popped, you know, it was like, boom, right? It's, it's a rather large building and completely white, uh, drew in the sun, reflected the sun, looks very happy, right? Uh, the folks at Clooney Williamsburg had done some paint analysis. I think it's the 1990s, had done some paint analysis in the 1990s. And one of the things that they discovered is that this building, which they had been whitewashing for years, uh, was not white, in the time period that the rest of the city was restored to. But in fact, this building was something called, I believe it's Spanish red, which is this deep, 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 like brown red. Uh, so they repainted the house. They repainted this house this dark, dark color. So, so it went from being this sort of bright, white, crisp building to this like dark, 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 dark red. Uh, and it's around that time that, that people began to tell ghost stories about it. I, I haven't found many ghost stories about that building that predate the painting. Um, so after it becomes this sort of dark building, and it is dark, at night it is, it disappears, right? It is completely different than this white that at least would reflect the moonlight. Now it is, it is disappear in the, disappear in the night red. And so more contemporarily in the late 20th and early 21st century, there's been a number of ghost stories that uh, sort of pinpoint this house as being especially haunted. Uh, And I think that as a historian, what we can take from that is sort of people trying to understand why this house feels different now, right? Why why does it feel like a darkened place? Now, a very large amount of that's probably related to the paint, but 
by looking at sort of the stories that are being told and the fact that people are, are telling stories, we we get this idea of how people people's relationship to the present and the past that's represented in the present is changing due to the way that it is um curated, right? So it's physically curated differently. And now people are sort of attributing a different history or a different feeling of history to it. One now that is very sort of warning, one that is very sort of cautious and uh, uh, feeling a bit spookier because of this uh, new sort of very dark paint. Hosmer. Hosmer is somebody that argued that preservation took a turn in the 1930s. Why was that? Okay, so what Hosmer talks about is this sort of professionalization turn. In the 1930s, one of the things that we see happening at historical sites within the United States is that uh, you have this new sort of uh, uh, group of professional museum people, right? Up until the 1930s, historical sites within the United States had been ran largely by volunteers. Um, If you look at the Mount Vernon Ladies Association who restored George Washington's house, they're all volunteers. They, they are not trained curators. Uh, They did not go to school to become leaders of a museum. In the 1930s, we're beginning to see that change. Uh, we're, we're, We're beginning to see historical sites like Colonial Williamsburg hire professionals. And Colonial Williamsburg is really sort of uh, leading the way in this. When John D. Rockefeller Jr., one of the wealthiest men in the world, agreed to help restore the city of Williamsburg to its 18th century look, one of the things that he was very adamant about that he wanted was to create something that was academically informed, that was professional, that wouldn't be something that is just a little project, but it had to be serious and it had to be trustworthy. And in order to sort of make that happen, he hired lots of academics. He hired lots of university trained people who had very different understandings of what made a historical site good and what made a historical site valuable. Uh, And that difference, of course, is that they didn't really see a value in the talk of ghosts. They didn't see a value in the talk of hauntings. Their values were more related to um, their understanding of authenticity, sort of material authenticity. Is this table found in the records? Is the material used to recreate this room reflected in records of what this room was first created about? So they're going to be much more focused on material. They're going to be much more focused on finding concrete evidence. Whereas beforehand, in this era of um, museums being created and curated largely by volunteers, they're working a bit more with heart, right? They want places that feel like there's a connection, right? That they, that feel right, that look right, that, that have a, um, uh, a kind of human presence, right? So what, what Hosmer's talking about with this, this professional turn is this sort of really significant moment. And it's centralized on Williamsburg in a significant way where historical sites begin to sort of pack away these older understandings, these more sort of human to human understandings of historical sites and get to a more rather scientific, um, material-based interpretation of historical sites. The New Deal's Federal Writers Project and Works Project Progress Administration, how did they change things? These, these projects are 
were hmm, uh, they were implemented during the Great Depression as a part of the New Deal uh, as efforts to both get sort of educated middle class folks back to work. So your researchers, your writers, uh, and also to help create a kind of unifying American culture. You know, the United States is big. Um, and especially in the early 20th century, there's not as much sort of universal national heritage, right? Um, there are national brands and there are sort of common national experiences, but the sort of culture of the United States is very sort of pockets. There's lots of pockets in it. So one of the things that the Work Progress Administration or the Work Projects Administration, they changed their name halfway through, uh, and the Federal Writers Project did, was it sent folks out to everywhere. Just go, go to rural places, go to urban places, and start collecting stories. So they would go to rural places and start knocking on doors saying, you know, do you have, what stories do you have? What folk stories do you have? They would go to libraries and say, who's the person in town who knows the ghost stories? Uh, or who who knows the, the folklore stories? Who knows the, the, the traditional stories? And so they began to collect stories that way. Um, this this is also a sort of sister project to the um, the slave narrative project, where many of the same people were sent back out, and they said, "Go find the um, the people who are still alive today, who were born into or experienced slavery, and get their stories." So this this is all happening kind of at the same time. There's People just going into all kinds of towns, asking people all kinds of questions. And some of them are about their uh, experience with slavery. Some of them are about, like, what are the cultural stories you know? What are the cultural practices, your cultural songs? Um, and out of this research, we get sort of these, what we now consider to be these larger national stories. So things like Paul, I, know, Paul, I think Paul Bunyan was an advertising gimmick, but uh, like Johnny Appleseed and Simon Keaton, all, all of these sort of folklore heroes that that we may have uh, learned about when we were children on like car rides or whatever came out of this project. So people were collecting the stories and they would write them and they'd be published in these sort of state guidebooks um, and sort of shared with the rest of the nation with this eye towards saying these are American stories uh, and they are um, what what we would consider today like surprisingly diverse for, for the 1930s because they're including stories from everybody. They have um, stories from recent immigrants. They have stories from people who've been in the United States for generations, um, Native Americans, African Americans, and they're all sort of packaged as American culture. So um, in that way, the WPA and F... WP really helped create sort of a foundational cultural understanding. For my work specifically, they collected a ton of ghost stories, some intentionally, some unintentionally. They are usually found in a lot of folklore files. Um, sometimes they're labeled as ghost stories. Sometimes they're not. Um, sometimes they're just labeled as historical significance. There's a, a specific project in Virginia that was a part, it was like a state-sponsored Federal Writers Project. It's like somewhere in that great big web of those projects. Uh, and it was called the Virginia Historical Initiative. I believe that that's what it was. Uh, and what they did is they went around to all the historical buildings and all of the historical uh, sort of archives 
uh, and they recorded them. The idea was to like get down the stats. What is this building? How old is it? Who's owned it? Who owns it now? And what's historically significant about it? And in many of these cases where people were going around Virginia and they would much in the way that the old home biographers did, they'd go up to the homeowners and they'd say, why is this place significant? What history does it have here? And the homeowners would respond to them with a ghost story. Say, oh, well, we, we've had this house in our family since the 1700s. And uh, in the upper left room, there is a woman who was left during the Civil War and she's sad and she died of a heartache. And she's still there waiting for her, for her lover. So they would explain the significance of their homes through these, these ghost stories and, and really tie themselves to the past by saying that they share a home with history. Literally, they, they share a home with people of the past. Paranormal researchers that maybe use technology to find the energies of ghosts did you write about that at all, or even maybe the psychic connection that they'd have? I didn't write too much about ghost hunters. I, I think there might be a small passage about it. Um, but yeah, there's. I didn't write too much about that or mediums, um, largely because the sort of theme of my research is is more about what, what the idea of ghosts and hauntings uh, has done for how people understand historical place, less so about the sort of uh, pseudoscientific backing of ghost hunting. Though I do talk about it, I think like a paragraph worth about sort of how it um, sort of coincides with the development of ghost tours. Cause there's many ghost tours and, and, and ghost tours really do uh, tend to stick to stories It's like a walking, talking story time. Uh, And the ghost hunts uh, have less story and more sort of seeking to find evidence, right? That they want sort of pseudoscientific evidence of a spirit or an energy there. And then they'll, they'll add sort of a historical narrative to it afterwards, whereas ghost stories are much more historical narrative forward. Um, They're telling you a story and it has ghosts in it. Whereas the, um, the ghost hunters and the sort of mediums are, are kind of a, a different category of engagement. Yeah. Can you explain to us what old home biographies are and how you use them for your research? So um, these still exist today. Uh, they are essentially coffee table books. They're like glossy paged books. And they have like 16 chapters in them or so. And they profile old homes. So someone goes into, or they, you know, write a letter or call them up, send them an email, uh, old houses, and they take pictures and they describe what makes the house architecturally unique. They describe um, the interior of it, and they describe a little bit of the history. So the way that I use the old home biographer books uh, was to get at some of these places where people were using ghost stories to explain historical significance in a way that wasn't very ghost forward, right? There, uh, these old home biographers went to houses saying, show us your cool staircase, show us your original hardwood floors, and also, what's the history of this place? And in many cases, the homeowners would say, well, the history is best told through this ghost story. So I, I use these books and really what they were saying in them as a way to illustrate how very casual, how very common the use of ghost stories were. Because these these weren't people saying, like, you know, 
let's go make a fire in the backyard and roast some marshmallows and you'll tell me the spooky tales of your house. They were simply saying, why is it historical? And the homeowners were saying, well, it's historical because we have a ghost. And that, and I found that absolutely fascinating because it is so casual. Uh, it's, it's not formalized. It's not a ghost tour. It's not asking for ghost stories, but they're just giving them ghost stories because that's how they understood the historical significance of their homes and their relationship to the history of their homes. The film Williamsburg, the story of a Patriot, is that any good? And can you recommend others? So Williamsburg, a story of a Patriot, you can find it on, um, you can find it online. It might be on YouTube. I I think it's on like archive.com or maybe it's archive.org. It's not the national archives, but you can find it very easily. It's fine. <laughs> it is. Uh, and really, if you go to Williamsburg, they show it on a loop like they always have. Yeah, it's, um, it's, I think it does a nice job of illustrating how the city is, or really how, how the city was used by 18th century people, which is something that folks had not seen, especially when that movie came out in the 1950s. They had not experienced a colonial Williamsburg where people were opening up the shutters, where they were going in and out of the doors in period outfits, where they were, um, you know, navigating chickens in the road. Uh, so in that way, the movie does a really good job of peopling restored Williamsburg. Um, the plot is cute, right? It's 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 a very cute plot. It's um, colonial planter gets called to represent his area in the house of Burgesses. And it happens at this moment where the Burgesses is sort of on the cusp of revolution. And his, his son is kind of rebellious and likes the more radical guys in the government. And um, it's, it's the 1950s. So his, his wife and his daughter go hat shopping. So it's, it's, it is, I think it does a good job of peopling the restored area. And I think it does a very good job of sort of illustrating how the 1950s was understanding the, the revolutionary era. So in that way, it's great. Uh, it's, it's this really wonderful 20th century piece of sort of, uh, historical expression. Um, as for other movies, I I can't think of many other sort of Williamsburg-based movies. Williamsburg is often used as a historical background in many historical films. I know it was used in the HBO series John Adams, and that that was a fun show too. Um, but yeah, the, if, if you like Colonial Williamsburg or if you're curious about it, definitely go look up the story of a patriot, because you, you you get a really good idea of how the site was understanding itself, how the how the people who ran Colonial Williamsburg in the 1950s were understanding the value that their restoration had. So in that way, yeah, it, it's fun. Was there opposition to the Colonial Williamsburg project, either in the past or maybe now, for whatever reason? Oh, yeah. You did write on historical accuracy and academic integrity. Yes, yes. So in the beginning, uh, in the late 1920s, of course, the people who were living in Williamsburg were a little bit suspicious about the idea that their entire city was going to be turned into a restored city. That That is not a thing that had been done before. And they were living there. They were living in these houses. Um, so that was very weird that... Um, 
John D. Rockefeller, the wealthiest man in the world, was going to come into their city and turn back the clock, make it look like an old-timey place. So there was a little bit of pushback against that. There, of course, was pushback from uh, both the African-American and the Greek community that lived in Williamsburg uh, because in the 1920s and 30s, the way the Restoration folk understood the past that they wanted to recreate was one that did not include the 50% population of African-Americans that lived in Williamsburg, both enslaved and free, or the Greek folks at all. So there was pushback against that because many people lost their 20th century communities and their, their 20th century homes um, in exchange for the creation of this historical site. So there was definitely a little pushback in the beginning, but it was... Um, those who were asked at the time did consent to it. So they, they uh, John D. Rockefeller couldn't eminent domain and scoop up these houses. He had to purchase them. So there, the, the records show and in town hall meetings, people being concerned, but eventually yielding and saying, okay, let's do this. Um, there was controversy, of course, in, um, uh, in those like mid-century years, there was a lot of claims of like, oh, you, you didn't do this quite right. Or, oh, my God, this is so boring. Because, again, they really struggled for many years with interpreting. So folks were like, ah, this this isn't hitting the mark, right? Um, in the 1970s, when the institution began its first-person interpretation program, um, they were doing first-person interpretation uh, with both um, white and black employees. Uh, and due to the racial and labor makeup of the 18th century, that made the black employees perform as enslaved people. Uh, and that was very difficult early on, uh, largely because the sort of emotional toll of asking a, a performer to perform as an enslaved person um, was real, right? That is something that they they really experienced. It was a very uh, emotional, very difficult project. And on top of that, many guests were just rude um, and said really ugly things to the African-American first-person interpreters while they were in character um, that, you know, really made it a hostile work environment for these interpreters. Um, I, from, from what I've been told, that is less so nowadays, so I hope that that, that is true. Um, but yeah, in the, the 1970s, throughout the 90s, um, you know, people oftentimes do not act in a kind way to other people. Um, so there's, there's controversy about that. There was very noticeable controversy in the 1990s because Colonial Williamsburg's African-American Interpretation Department um, put on a mock slave auction. Uh, and they had researched it and they felt very confident about it. Um, and essentially the, the people of, of Williamsburg were simply not ready to see that. And they protested against it. And the institution has never done anything like that again. Uh, but there was a great hubbub about that as well. And I, I think that that, that, that had a lot to do with sort of where the nation was in the 1990s, that people weren't ready to see that. I think if they recreated that today, um, it would go over much better, but it was very, uh, it's very, in, very innovative to the point that many folks just did not want to see that. Um, and they like it was huge. There was like 2000 people there that day. 
Um, the the NAACP came to protest it. There were like old civil rights guys who had come out. Um, it was a huge swelling and people were really sort of disgusted with the idea that Colonia Williamsburg would present something so heartbreaking. Um, but the interpreters really held firm to the idea that you can't present the history of slavery without the heartbreak, that, that to present the history of colonial America, to present the 18th century in Williamsburg without a recognition that slavery was a horrifying process that was painful and was heartbreaking, was a, was a presentation of, of a falsehood that you, you couldn't tell the story of slavery without the pain. So we, in, in that way, Colonial Williamsburg definitely did see a lot of controversy um, uh, with their interpretation. There's been less pushback about the ghost tours nowadays. Um, the official Colonial Williamsburg interpreters still suffer a bit from the ghost tours because people will come on their daytime tours and ask them questions about things that they heard on the ghost tours that are factually inaccurate, um, like the story of um, uh, Lady Skipwith. And they'll say, oh, well, didn't she die here? And the interpreters are like, no, that's that's a ghost story thing. That's that's not actually w- what happened. So there's there's a little uh, frustration with with that in in that arena as well. Halloween, just because we're in October now, are you planning to visit Williamsburg or have you visited for Halloween? I'm not visiting this year, but I but I have gone for the for the Halloween events. Yeah, I think the last time I was up because I'm in Georgia um, was I think 2018. So it was before the pandemic. So yes, I believe I was up there in 2018, and I went on a number of ghost tours. Um, so I went on a few private ghost tours, which is by the the private companies, um, and then I think I went on a Colonial Williamsburg ghost tour as well. And then I, uh, I did get to see some of the Halloween extravaganza, but I'm not going up, um, this year. Uh, I do know, or I do remember, um, the last time I was up there, sort of something of note, the last time I was up there for the Halloween tours, it was on Halloween night. Um, and the tour I was on with a friend of mine was followed by this person in a ghost costume by like 30 feet back, like 30 feet behind us. There was, and it's dark. It's like, it is proper fall autumn night. Uh, and this person kept following the group and it was our group in particular, cause there's a ton of ghost tour groups in Williamsburg and in any given night. But this guy was following us or gal, whoever um, was following us in this ghost costume. And it just scared the, scared the, the lights out of us. Um, then the ghost stories are always well well told, but it was this sort of sp- particular person who had really gotten into the spirits of the spooky evening. It was so so like perfectly spooky, right? You, they didn't jump out, they didn't yell, they just like slowly followed in this very haunting way that just whew, gave us the willies. So it is it is a Williamsburg at Halloween is a good time, uh, and they you know it's it's Williamsburg, so they they have a lot of try. So they're they're trying stuff. They're doing things. Um, so yeah, I, as far as a recommendation goes, yeah, go for it. it. It'll be a good time. And they they do all kinds of things now. They've really leaned into Halloween 
I think that they're that the city itself does stuff too. I think they, they had like a blow up screen and they were um, showing Casper, the friendly ghost, the, the movie from the nineties with Christina Ricci. And I know there's a dog parade where they let the dogs dress up in costumes, which is adorable. Uh, and of course their Halloween spectacular where I, I believe it's still witch. It's like sea witch themed in, in years prior. It was pirate themed. Uh, but they, which I guess Sea Witch is kind of piratey as well. But that's a really big event, and, and um, both adults and children really enjoy that too. It's been sponsored by the Mars Company, or it was originally. So there's lots of candy to be found and all that. Where else do you recommend someone to visit if it's their first time in Colonials Williamsburg? All right, so um, recommendations. So it really depends on what you're looking at and what you're looking for in Williamsburg. Um, because if like you should go to Colonial Williamsburg, pay the ticket, right? Um, Colonial Williamsburg is set along a public street, so you can just walk around and look at the buildings. Um, but it it is worth it to buy a ticket to be able to go inside and to interact with the interpreters, because it's it's a part of a whole thing, right? You can you can look at the outside, but if you really want to see what Colonial Williamsburg is doing, what their interpreters are doing, you need to buy a ticket and and really have that experience. Um, there's a number of other plantations throughout the sort of tidewater area that offer special ghost tour stuff for the, uh, for the season. Those are also sort of in, in engaging and you get to see the insides of lots of different houses and you get to see how contemporary homeowners are understanding the history of their plantation homes and um, the ghost stories related to that, which is fascinating. Um, to go there, um, I guess it would be wrong not to mention going to the cheese shop is like a cheese and wine and sandwich place that's kind of a staple for for Williamsburg for Colonial Williamsburg and also uh William and Mary students um but yeah there's you should also go to the art museums uh but yeah and it's it's a it's a very suburban place so if you're planning on going there definitely you're gonna need a car but yes there's you could simply google (laughs) Williamsburg Virginia Halloween and it's gonna just pummel you with pumpkin themed events and if the New Books Network audience wants to follow up with you or to find out more about your research, are you going to be doing any in-person events or hosting virtual seminars? How can people reach you? For now, um, I don't have any speaking and events lined up. I have a few podcasts, uh, interviews, much, much like this one, but no speaking events yet. Um, if you want to contact me, email me. That's the best way to get me. Um, I'm at a p i r o k at georgiasouthern.edu, um, and absolutely check in if you uh, if you're interested in, in sort of how the history of ghosts has shaped, or sort of how how ghost stories and historical ideas have shaped people's understandings of historical sites. I'm your gal. Uh, interested in the history of Colonial Williamsburg, first person interpretation, the, the history of public history, and yes, by all means, reach out. Also, what's next for you as far as publishing um, or in your studies? Up next, I am working on another um, monograph that's going to be looking at the history of U.S. prison museums, um, which there, there are quite a few in the United States. So these these are museums about prison that are set within defunct prisons, right? So Eastern State, 
West Virginia Penitentiary, um, Alcatraz. So that's that's the next project. So I'm going to be exploring why these places were um, protected, what and what sort of story about prison within the United States they are presenting and why, and sort of putting that uh, w- within its own historical context. Because a lot of these museums developed during the 1990s. So again, sort of looking at public history within its historical perspective. And do you have any final thoughts for your audience? Um, I guess I, I would encourage people to do go on ghost tours. Uh, and rather than, you know, thinking about how spooky the, the stories are, uh, to think critically about how the stories and the idea of haunting are making that place wherever it is. You know, it, it doesn't have to be Virginia. It doesn't even have to be Savannah where, where I'm at now. But wherever you are, think about how those ghost stories are sort of establishing the history in a given location. Uh, and I think that that'll be very fruitful uh, as you sort of think through your ghost tour experience. Today's podcast has been one on history with your host, Nathan Moore. We are all appreciative to hear Alina Pirock speak to us about her work on Colonial Williamsburg and the spectral haunts that make up the place and region. For more episodes on history, stay tuned in to the New Books Network, where new podcasts are uploaded to the website. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.